Good morning. Today's Monday, May 15th, and this is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz. I'm Heather Relkin. I'm Jacqueline Kenny. I'm Carl Rollman. Today on the show, we talk with novelist Ken Liu. Ken Liu is an author and translator of speculative fiction, as well as a lawyer and a programmer. A winner of the Nebula, Hugo, and World Fantasy Awards, he has been published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Asimov's, Analog, Clark's World, Lightspeeds, and St- Strange Horizon, among other places. Ken's debut novel, The Grace of Kings, is the first volume in a silk punk epic fantasy series, The Dandelion Dynasty. It won the Locus Best First Novel Award, and was a Nebula finalist. He subsequently published the second volume in the series, The Wall of Storms, as well as a collection of short stories, The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories. In addition to his original fiction, Ken is also the translator of numerous literary and genre works from Chinese to English. His translation of The Three-Body Problem by Liu Cixian won the Hugo Award for Best Novel in 2015, the first translated novel ever to receive that honor. He also translated the third volume in the series, Death's End, and edited the first English-language anthology of contemporary Chinese science fiction, Invisible Planets. All right, thanks for joining us, Ken. Thank you for having me. I figured maybe we would start with um, the, the paper menagerie, uh, the collection. Uh, and one of the things that I noted that you said in the uh, preface was, all fiction is about prizing the logic of metaphors which is the logic of narratives in general over reality, which is irreducibly random and senseless. Uh, this suggests that narrative is critical to both social and individual survival in many ways. Uh, you even begin and end the story, the first story of the collection, uh, the bookmaking habits of select species with the line, everyone makes books, which is a great line. Do you think we're defined by our narratives? And what do you think that says about contemporary culture, considering those narratives that we currently prize? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, uh, so first of all, again, thank you um, for having me uh, here and uh, for these very thoughtful questions. Um, I would say that one of the themes uh, in all of my work um, is a simultaneous um, deep respect for narratives in general, as well as a, as a very uh, deeply embedded um, skepticism about narratives. Um, and the reason for that is, I think, as a species, we've evolved to understand the world uh, not as it is, but as stories we can tell about the world. Um, we're not persuaded by data, and we do not, in fact, we cannot, in fact, know reality. Um, except as it's filtered and made sense to us um, through an integrated uh, narrative through, in the form of a story. Uh, and so in that very fundamental sense, we are defined by our narratives because we are, in fact, the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. Mm-hmm. And we are, in fact, the stories that um, others tell about who we are. 
Um, this is not necessarily a bad thing, uh, because if, if that is, in fact, the only way we can know the world, uh, then uh, we need to learn how to take advantage of it. Uh, it's sort of like if you're in Plato's cave and all you can see are shadows. Uh, rather than lamenting the fact that you can only see shadows, you need to understand how to live a fulfilling life and how to do well by observing shadows. Um, so uh, I, I think narratives exist on multiple levels. Uh, there are national myths and national narratives, uh, and there are family narratives and family stories, and, and there are professional stories and individual stories. Um, all of these stories are stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, how we're different from everybody else in the world, both in space and time. Uh, and I'm very interested, uh, for example, in foundational narratives uh, for cultures. Um, America, for example, has a very powerful national myth, a national narrative that explains to ourselves uh, who we are uh, and, and how we are different from every people that, that came before us, uh, as well as everybody um, on Earth that lives elsewhere. Um, and, you know, the foundational narrative for America, of course, uh, starts with the Revolutionary War, and then perhaps even with mythical uh, tendrils reaching uh, backwards, uh, uh, sometimes including uh, the indigenous peoples who lived here long before America was a concept. But... The foundational narrative of America often starts with the Revolutionary War and goes through the Constitution and sometimes uh, includes the Civil War as a second founding, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a powerful story that, that allows us to hold on to American exceptionalism, that allows us to uh, believe that we are, in fact, distinct from every other empire, uh, that we are, uh, we are um, special. Um, but one of the unique things about the American myth um, is the fact that, uh, unlike many other national narratives, our national narratives often tend to be told and defined by outsiders. Uh, for example, one of the greatest foundational texts for the American myth um, is Tocqueville's uh, American Democracy, on Democracy, um, or Democracy in America is the actual title. Um, you know, here, here's a Frenchman who is not, in fact, an American, uh, comes to America for a few months, travels around, and then writes down a bunch of observations about how he thinks Americans are different from everybody else. Uh, this is an outsider's perspective. But we have, in fact, uh, taken that view and made it into part of our national myth. Uh, uh, Democracy in America is a text now taught uh, in many schools and classes and, and embedded in political uh, rhetoric. Uh, as, a, as a very much um, uh, American view of ourselves. Uh, and that process has happened again and again, where outsiders' views become part of the American story. And I think one of the great interesting things about the American myth is the way that who gets to tell that story and, and who gets to define its meaning has expanded and, and grown over time. Um, uh, enslaved peoples were once excluded from the American story, mm -hmm. as were the, the indigenous peoples, uh, and then as were immigrants of all stripes. Uh, and over time, uh, who gets to tell this American myth and who gets to define what it means has grown over time, has grown as well. Um, and uh, I am, you know, a lot of our political uh, turmoil and uh, disagreements can be traced back 
into this fight over who gets to tell the American story and who gets to define it, even though historically the American story and the American myth has always been open to outside voices and, and the observations of outsiders. Uh, and, and we're very welcoming to incorporating those uh, those voices into our narratives. And so the paper menagerie, the, the very story that uh, you, um, uh, the collection uh, that, that you start the interview with, um, you know, the title story uh, has often been misunderstood, I think. Uh, a lot of times people read the paper menagerie, the, the title story, and view it as some sort of uh, cultural conflict story about uh, the conflict between an American um, uh, son and uh, a Chinese mother. Uh, I think that's a completely misunderstanding and misinterpretation of the story. Uh, the story is equally about the mother as it is about the son, and the mother um, is very much an American. Uh, uh, her, her, her story isn't a Chinese story at all. Uh, she chose to come to America and become American, and her Americanness is defined by her very insistence on not being assimilated and becoming mainstream American, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. uh, she remains an outsider, but outsiders can be Americans. And then she remains uh, to, to the end to have this perspective on what it means to be American from an outsider's perspective. She does not, um, she learns to speak the language and she learns to adapt some of the customs, but she holds on to her heritage. Uh, that is one way of being American, and I think it's it's a way of being American that is often uh, not uh, valued or or appreciated. Uh, we valorize a kind of immigration narrative that talks about assimilation as though rejecting the heritage uh, of our past is somehow a bad thing. Uh, I'm sorry, rejecting the heritage of our past is somehow a good thing. It's the only way to becoming American, but that's not true. Historically, that has never been true. Um, uh, the American story has always been about outsiders coming to America, bringing with them their ways and making them into part of the American uh, chorus, into the American voice. Our story is made up of other stories from elsewhere which have taken root in this new land uh, and, and become part of something greater. Uh, it's not about giving up the past and giving up uh, our heritage. And, and so the mother is actually very much American. And, and to read her as not American is a fundamental misreading of the story. And, you know, that's one way in which uh, I, I participate in this act of changing stories, changing narratives, uh, trying to participate in the formation of the American foundational myth, the foundational narratives. Um, and, and I think these fights over what stories are, uh, are about, who gets to tell what kind of stories, and how they're interpreted is very much the way culture uh, moves forward and very much the way we form our own identity and, and, and understand each other. So in that way, yes, I think we are defined by our narratives, and I think that is why these narratives are incredibly important. And I, and I, I you know, one of the most powerful parts, I think, for me about that story in particular is the sort of understanding the son has by the end of the story uh, about his mother, you know, that she too uh, was American and um, ex extremely sort of valuable in ways that he maybe denied, right, earlier on in his life. Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so 
building off of that and then talking about another one of the stories from that collection, uh, the Literomancer um, and the Paper Menagerie, in them, language and its translation are essential to personal truth for the characters. Um, and at the same time, they're linked to elements of magic in the story. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the process of writing, translation, and interpretation with regard to both you as a writer and the readers, too? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think translation is, is an amazing metaphor to understand communication in general and writing in particular. Um, you know, we often speak of translation as, as something that happens between languages, between texts. Uh, but in fact, um, all reading and all communication um, is translation. Uh, I mean, if you think about the very process by which people communicate, especially the way a writer communicates with a reader, it, it really is miraculous, right? So the writer has these ideas uh, in, in her head, and then she, she writes them down in marks on paper or by rearranging electrons on some magnetic medium uh, into these uh, bits. Um, and then, then these symbols that somehow carry the thoughts uh, in some um, poorly understood way. Even now, we, we don't really understand how semantics works. Um, these symbols then get transformed um, into the stream of commerce uh, and the publishing industry and turns into these paper codices um, or electronic files that readers then individually uh, download to their devices or acquire through um, uh, a store. Uh, and then light strikes uh, these patterns on the page or on the screen, and, and they become new patterns in the reader's head. And the reader somehow uh, recreates characters, scenes, dialogue, uh, and, and entire plots um, that the writer had uh, in her head uh, and, and the amazing thing is, uh, even though each of us uh, is imprisoned in our skulls, and, and we, we, are, we are, you know, utterly alone uh, in, in, in this darkness without being able to really touch each other, we are able, through the medium of, of language, to achieve some kind of sympathy, some kind of connection, um, to be able to view the same imaginary world. Um, no. To be sure, the way I conceive of a character and a scene is not going to be exactly the same as the way you've conceived, um, you've reconceptualized the character and the scene in your head. But nonetheless, despite our differences, there's some kind of essential commonality in that act of communication. And of course, the entire process is layered through multiple ways of translation, the way my ideas are translating to language, uh, the way language is translating to symbols, uh, symbols are then retranslated back into language and then back into ideas in your head. There's multiple layers of translation happening along the way. And in every single step, um, some kind of culture negotiation is happening, right? So the way I put my ideas into the text uh, means that tons of assumptions and expectations I have in my head about how things work has been filtered out. So that stream of symbols goes to the reader. And the reader now will have to pack the text full of her own assumptions and, and expectations and frameworks and understandings about the world and, and interpretive frameworks uh, before the reader can unpack the text and, and, and retrieve meaning. 
uh, tons of things are put in, tons of things are taken out. Uh, the, it's, it's, all of us are in dialogue and in contention with the culture around us, uh, both our individual, uh, unique personal cultures and also the shared culture at large. Uh, the fact that any kind of understanding uh, occurs between the two of us is, you know, to me, miraculous. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's layers of translation, layers of culture negotiation. I'm utterly amazed every time any kind of active communication uh, works at all. It's, 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 you know, just amazing how, how that translation process uh, works and allows us to, to, to share some kind of glimmer of commonality despite the vast differences between each of us. Um, and at the same time, you know, translation, I think, is, is an amazing metaphor for us to understand the way texts live in cultures. Um, for example, uh, among translators, there's a common uh, lament that whereas the original is evergreen, uh, translations uh, are ephemeral, and therefore they're time only. Uh, this is why great classics are retranslated again and again, why the King James Bible does not feel as right to us as you know, the more modern standard translation, even though the underlying text of the Bible, of course, stays evergreen. But I think that's actually kind of a misunderstanding of how, how translation happens. I, I think the reason why um, the original stays evergreen and translation feel ephemeral or, or limited to their time is because the original actually is always undergoing the process of self-translation. The way, for example, Moby Dick's original readers interpreted the text and, and read the text is quite different from how we interpret and approach and read that text now. Not only do we live in a different culture, and so all the words now have a different kind of set of meaning to us, but we're also reading the text now through layers of meta-translations and meta-interpretations in the intervening years. Um, uh, Moby Dick has always, as, as, it become, as, it, as it's being read by each reader, taking on a new meaning, because each reader acts as her own interpreter and translator when she approaches the text. And so the text is always self-translating, and each reader is acting as a self-translator as the text lives in that culture and gets passed down to generations. So every text is undergoing constant reinterpretation and retranslation by every reader down the years. And that is why it stays evergreen, because it's always conversing, always negotiating, and always being translated in, in the process of being read and being kept alive. That was a wonderful, wonderful summary <laughs> of messages. And I, I'm a communication major. In one of, one of our first like, core classes, we talk about um, how messages are formed. And when you're in communication, it's, it's not... You know, it's never 100%. There's never 100% understanding, and it's just me encoding a message and sending it out through some sort of transmission, you know, whether it's my voice or text or an email, and hoping that when you decode that message that I sent, that you decoded it the way that I encoded it. And it never works that way. It really doesn't. Um, but, like, we need to, to copy that little part <laughs> and put that in our curriculum because you worded it so, so well. That was great. <laughs> I, I think a lot of times people think of translation as some sort of obscure, unique uh, step in communication. It's, it's something that happens when people speak different languages. But, you know, the reality is all of us speak our own idiolect, yeah. our, yeah. our unique languages. And it, it is 
it is always we're always translating each other. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and um, you know, Stephen Stephen King had said something to the effect of, you know, uh, um, writing, writing, reading is writing and reading are forms of telepathy, right? And yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and he 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 writes that in on writing, but the way you talk about it, the sort of the cultural uh, sharing afterwards is really important to keep that text alive as well. I'm thinking about not only classroom discussions, right, um, but book clubs and, you know, talking about the stories that um, that move us in one way or another. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's a common um, uh, 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 theme among translators that... Um, often uh, a, a work um, uh, will not necessarily gain permanence in its own native culture, but will receive a new life in translation. But, but in fact, that's actually how all classics and all great works uh, survive. Mm-hmm. The reason why some bestsellers from, say, 100 years ago are no longer read, uh, and, and if we read them now, they, they, they feel utterly... Uh, pointless or, or in, in, inaccessible, but the great classics, uh, when we read them, we still feel that they, they speak to us, is because the great classics are the books that have been constantly translated down the years uh, by each reader who has approached it. Um, and, and, and because they stay in the cultural conversation, they renew themselves in that way. Uh, Hamlet, you know, stays, stays fresh to us, not, not necessarily because the text by itself is so powerful, but because we have added to it over the years yeah. with layers and layers of meaning and interpretations and rewritings and adaptations and translations uh, and derivative um, works. Uh, the, the, it's, 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 it's this way of, of generating a, a conversation, uh, generating multiple translations and multiple adaptations that is able to survive. Uh, in fact, uh, you'll probably uh, notice, uh, by the way I talk about all this, that these are some of the ideas underlying uh, the book-making habits of select species. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that story appears to be about aliens, but it's really about the many, many ways that we humans relate to the text and, and work with the text. Yep, yep. Um, so shifting a little bit to The Grace of, of Kings, uh, I loved um, the dedication uh, of that book. Um, and you say uh, it's dedicated to your grandmother, who introduced you to the great heroes of the Han Dynasty and the memory of the afternoons you spent together listening to Pingxu storytellers on the radio. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the stories and the experience of listening to them with your grandmother, like rather than reading them in a book or experiencing them through some other medium, um, how that informs your writing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I was a child, in China, uh, the way the schools worked was there was a, a midday lunch break, and the kids are supposed to return home to have lunch and then return to school for the afternoon session. Uh, it just also happened that lunchtime is when the radio would bro- broadcast uh, these performances by Dingshu storytellers of um, uh, classics uh, uh, or other stories in their repertoire. Now, Pingshu is a very old, old uh, oral uh, storytelling art form in China. Um, and the way it worked is the storyteller would have very few props, 
perhaps uh, nothing more than a fan uh, or, or something else that can be used to, to make gestures and to make noise with. Um, and the storyteller would basically uh, tell stories. Um, uh, their performances would uh, include a, a repertoire of, of, of classics as well as um, more contemporary stories that they make up. Uh, and the way the storytellers would, would, would tell the story is that they, they would, you know, uh, perform the voices of the characters, but also interject from time to time with commentary on the story to explain things to the audience, to, to, to offer comparisons to the modern world, uh, to lament human nature, to, to, to praise heroism, to, to, to sympathize with the audience uh, about some particularly tragic event, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it's a very interactive um, uh, uh, art form, narrative art form in that way. It's very much about performance in front of an audience. There's, there's very much of a, of, a, of a magic connection between the storyteller and the audience uh, in, in the way it works. Uh, that comes across even through the radio. And so, you know, as a child, I would run home every day uh, after the morning session so that I can get home in time to listen to these stories with my grandmother uh, as we eat lunch. Uh, and then afterwards, um, uh, uh, she and I would talk about the, the performance that day and then and discuss just how... Uh, just how this, how how the story went, and then who was my favorite character, and then why did they do this? You know, why did he not listen to his advisor? Why why did she reject the suit uh, from from that that senior general, et cetera, et cetera? And this is the way in which we, um, my grandmother and I, uh, my grandmother uh, introduced. Uh, storytelling and then how to interpret and understand stories to me. Uh, you know, those conversations are very important to me because uh, that was, the stories were, were among the first stories I ever learned and, and, and really loved and, and talking about them with my grandmother uh, was an important way in which I gained an appreciation of them and, and, and understood how the magic of these stories can take hold on, on, on uh, a child as well as uh, someone uh, who had been through a lot of trials and tribulations in life. Um, and of course, uh, some of the most famous stories being performed by Pinchu storytellers are based on Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Uh, and so I did not, my initial exposure to that classic uh, was not through the novel uh, nor the history book, but through the Pinchu storytelling. Uh, and so, in some ways, that became the, the foundational uh, text, if you will, for how I approached that story, uh, even more authoritative than the novel on which uh, it's, it's based or the history on which it's derived from. Uh, and, and it's that, that, that legendary, that oral, that miraculous quality of, of the story that I wanted to convey and preserve um, in the way I wrote my first novel. Uh, and, and, and to uh, commemorate those wonderful times I spent with my grandmother where I got exposed to all uh, these storytelling techniques and, and the magic of narrative, uh, I dedicated the book to her, uh, even though she didn't get to live uh, long enough to see me publish it. And, and, and even the characters uh, throughout the novel, and uh, I'm thinking particularly of like Mimi in Wall of Storms, like storytelling and 
uh, and that listening process and interaction is is super important. You know, I'm thinking particularly of when Mimi is struck by lightning and the, you end a chapter with, you know, tell me a story. Right, absolutely. Um, the, the, the characters in my, in my novels uh, have a very conscious, self-conscious awareness of the importance of narrative of storytelling. They are, in some ways, very much self-aware of, of the fact that our lives are constructed, our memories are constructed. Uh, I, I mean, you know, just to, to, to put a little more gloss on it, um, the, the, the way we sort of live our lives and form our memories is, is fascinating. We, we don't, our memories are not formed in the way that recording devices do their job. It's not, it's not a, um, uh, not a photograph, it's not a video, it's not a, um, uh, 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 a faithful reproduction of all the sensory data we're exposed to at each moment. The way we form memories is by telling ourselves a story about what just happened. And, and we, we tell that story each time we remember something. And, and because we re-remember it, uh, we change the memory. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all of our memories are our stories. And, and in fact, heavily edited and heavily rewritten stories each time we, we decide to recall something. Um, and this is why we end up uh, trying to attribute causes and effects to events in our lives and try to emphasize episodes of heroism and, then, and, and try to forget periods when we're not behaving as well as we should. Uh, and and, and uh, long years are compressed into a few significant events that we can recall, um, and, and the role of luck becomes de-emphasized, and the role of our own agency becomes emphasized. We, we, we turn ourselves into the heroes of our own narrative, uh, which would be very different if our stories were being told from somebody else's right. perspective. Right, exactly. um, but, you know, this is, this is, this is how, we, how we do it, and, and the characters in the novel are, are completely aware of this, or many of them are, and then they take advantage of it in the way that they um, shape their own narrative and, and craft the stories of those around them. So, in, in Grace of Kings, you use language as an integral part of fleshing out your cultures. Um, like, you have the different names for body postures, like the, the Geupa or the, the Mipavari. I'm wondering, did you create these terms based on real words? Like, did you loan meaning from real words, or did you create them from scratch specifically for their purpose? So, The Grace of Kings is kind of an interesting example. Um, it, it's what I call um, uh, an attempt at reimagining a foundational narrative uh, in a totally new cultural context. So, The Grace of Kings and the sequels are, in some ways, loosely based on the legendary history of the rise of the Han Dynasty in China but it's setting a fantasy world that is completely not magical China. And in fact, many of the writing techniques and, and, and features of, of, of the world uh, are consciously uh, written using a blend of Western epic techniques uh, as well as Eastern historical romances, uh, because I wanted to see what would happen if you take a foundational narrative from Chinese culture and, and try to transform it into a magical fantasy um, context uh, that, that is heavily influenced by Western epic storytelling. 
And and so um, as far as uh, the, the the cultural aspect, the body poses and, and the importance of, of of body poses, a lot of that is in fact derived from the source culture, uh, from from Chinese culture, especially Chinese culture of the classical era, um, in which uh, specific ways of of standing, sitting, posing, bowing, speaking were uh, all ways by which uh, relationships are affirmed, uh, context is established, and um, the respective relationship between uh, individuals are uh, uh, communicated. And so the poses often are based on or analogous to actual real poses. And, and so the words to describe these poses are, of course, in a uh, new artificial language I made up for the world, but they are in many ways, derived and then based on their source, uh, reference culture, uh, which is the Chinese culture of the uh, Han Dynasty, early Han Dynasty. Um, so when I was reading The Grease of Kings, I noticed that you emphasize a lot of aspects of nature. And I was wondering if having a connection with nature is something you feel strongly about personally, or if you integ integrate nature in the story more so, it because it's a common feature in fantasy writing. And what roles or role do you believe nature plays in the fantasy realm? So um, I do personally believe that uh, a deep connection with nature is important. Um, one of my favorite uh, writers is um, Annie Dillard, uh, who is uh, a modern uh, representative of that most American of philosophical traditions, transcendentalism, um, uh, you know, which comes down to us from uh, Emerson and Thoreau and, and so on. But uh, in Dillard's uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful expression of that, that importance of nature, of, of the way that we are deeply embedded in nature, and, and from, from nature, we cannot be separated, and our minds are ever refreshed and, and, and instructed by communion with nature. And of course, uh, there are Eastern philosophical traditions that emphasize this kind of connection as well, uh, Taoism uh, being, being one of them. Um, and for me, uh, these are personally very important ideas, connection with nature, but they're also uh, important artistically for the Grace of Kings. Uh, so the Grace of Kings and the Wall of Storms, uh, basically the entire Dendron Dynasty uh, series uh, is what I call a silk punk epic fantasy. Uh, what that really means is that um, it's an attempt at articulating uh, a technology, vocabulary, and aesthetic, and, and trying to see what kind of fantasy world uh, you can you can craft around it. In the same way that steampunk is uh, uh, a technology, vocabulary, and aesthetic derived from Victorian England, uh, applied in in a fantastical fantasy realm, uh, Soap Punk takes the classical East Asian technology, vocabulary, and aesthetic and tries to apply that to a fantasy land. And one of the unique things about East Asian uh, engineering and, and thoughts about uh, construction is a deep emphasis on harmony with nature. Um, so the idea is that houses and buildings need to be constructed out of materials and using uh, an adapt form that are harmonious with the surroundings. 
uh, and and that uh, machines uh, need to be constructed in a way that follows um, uh, the rules of nature, that follows the way uh, animals uh, and, and, and natural uh, geological uh, and geographical uh, structures behave. Uh, and this is why uh, in the Great of Kings, you have I have. Um, uh, machines constructed out of bamboo and, and silk and paper and feathers uh, and wood and animal sinew and all these natural materials and a lot of the ways that the machines move and, and function uh, is consciously through biophonetics uh, by imitating animals. Uh, so you have the airships that regulate their lift by analogy with the way fish regulate their uh, buoyancy. Um, and you have uh, submarines that move around uh, in the same way that whales move around uh, in, in water. Uh, that kind of conscious uh, aesthetic uh, and, and reference to, to nature uh, is very important uh, to the aesthetic of silk punk. Uh, so besides the fact that personally that kind of connection with nature is important, it's important to the world as well. Um, in terms of whether nature and connection with nature is important to fantasy in general, I don't know if I can give you a um, overall answer. I, I will say that because a lot of fantasy uh, is about nostalgia for a past that never really was, uh, sometimes nature functions as part of that nostalgia. Um, I personally did not write The Great of Kings and The Law of Storms to follow in that tradition. Um, uh, the novels are not about a magical past that never was. Uh, they're very much about uh, the idea that everything changes, uh, there's nothing constant, and that revolution uh, and empowering the disempowered uh, is the key uh, to forward progress. Uh, you know, that's why it's called so punk. Uh, you, you can't really call something punk unless it is, in fact, about distrust of the status quo. Uh, fantasy, you know, has a, has a reputation for being not... Um, very tolerant of resistance to resistance to authority. It always seems to be yearning towards some sort of golden past uh, where uh, a wonderful monarch held sway, and so we want the return of that ideal king. Uh, the the, the Greeks of Kings and the Wild Storms are not in that vein. They they are fantasy, but they're very much about revolution and and, and changes and, and empowering those who don't have power. Okay. Another thing in The Grace of Kings is that it touches on what might be considered the more traditional roles that women have historically fulfilled. You even have your characters call attention to the stigmas associated with those roles. For example, Marena attempts to belittle Kuni and Mata in an early siege, but Kuni turns this around by making a speech about the high regard all have for women. And many of your women characters rise above their assumed stations socially, Gen Mazodi, the war marshal, is probably the most obvious example, but Soto, Chia, and Kakomi are also examples. Do you see fiction as a vehicle to expose cultural norms like gender roles to teach or some combinations of these? Um, wow, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, uh, so let me, let me take this in two parts. Um, one is I want to uh, uh, say a little bit about... Um, the women characters in the series. So, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the the, the 
the series very much is about changing the status quo and, and, and revolutions. And so one of the things that I wanted to do is to engage in a dialogue um, with the original inspiration for the series, uh, which is the legendary history of the rise of the Han Dynasty, and to comment uh, in some ways on, on various ways things were and how things could have been different. And then one of these aspects, of course, is the role of women. Um, the legendary histories on which the stories are based uh, do have women in very traditional roles. Uh, in fact, uh, um, a lot of a lot of women who end up seizing power uh, in that legendary history are not written in a very positive way. Uh, and so, what I wanted to do is to first um, uh, try to um, present that world and then interrogate it and, and, and say. Does this world make sense? Uh, would would should this be the way things are? And and what would happen if the women characters do in fact want to seize power? Um, and 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 uh, history were not written uh, uh, the way it was to serve uh, established interests. Um, and so to fully see what the point of of that entire uh, of, of of the evolution of the role of women characters in the the society, um, you know, you'd have to go through the entire trilogy to see how the role, how the roles evolve and how things change. Uh, but just to compare Wall Storms versus The Great of King, um, The Great of King starts out by establishing a very, very traditional patriarchal uh, society uh, where women are not, in fact, allowed to have power uh, and, and have to seize power in traditionally feminine spheres. Uh, before expanding outward. And the novel makes a conscious um, highlight of, of this fact by basically having the first 100 to 200 pages um, uh, written entirely from the perspective of, of men. There, there are virtually no women uh, in those pages at all. And, and the only time you notice a difference is when, in that scene that you talk about, where during the siege, um, Cooney suddenly says, well, look at all these women who are, who are fighting with us. But until that moment happens, the reader is actually lured into a sense that women don't even seem to exist in this world. And it's meant to be a moment of shock to allow the reader to interrogate the world that has been set up so far and, and whether that world, in fact, makes sense. Because the novel up to that point is written very much in the vein of a legendary history, uh, the, the, the legendary history on which it's based. Um, it's, it's, it's establishing the framework from which rebellions and subversions and, uh, and deviations will happen. And then, of course, from that point on, things change more and more until you see more of it in the wall of storms. So that's the technique for presenting these commentaries. As for whether fiction needs to do that, has to do that, should do that, I don't have an opinion. I, I think the importance of fiction uh, has always been that it's not instrumental. It should not be, uh, at least I don't think, I, I don't think fiction uh, is a great way uh, to send out a specific message. I, I think fiction is a great way to take the reader on an emotional journey and, and to, to give the reader a specific experience. But I don't think the mode of fiction is the best mode of rhetoric suitable for making a specific argument. Uh, I, I think, in fact, uh, the reason for that is, um, you know, I think of 
fiction is a collaborative effort. Fiction almost always requires reader participation to succeed. The reader has to feel at home in the text that the writer has created, or at least feel like they have room for subverting the text, and they have room for playing with the text. They have room to um, ask questions of the text and to, to, to be angry with it, to, to question it, to engage with it in some way um, for fiction to be effective. But that means almost by necessity that the best kind of fiction cannot be too confining and too straightforward in the way it makes an argument. Uh, when it does that, it's very hard for the reader to find room to, to, to play with uh, in, in, in the text between the lines. Um, and so I personally feel that the way I want to craft fiction is to satisfy an aesthetic vision I have and to ask the questions I want to ask uh, and to um, have my characters uh, argue within the framework of the world uh, their own desires, their own goals, their ambitions. Uh, and to let the reader then fill out the rest in terms of how the dialogue with contemporary culture should be conducted. So I have another question. So in The Grace of Kings, Rusana is introduced as a smoke crafter, and I couldn't help comparing this art to writing. The smoke crafter uses uh, a medium to show the participant or the reader um, illusion and sometimes truth, but do you see writing as a form of and if so, is it like a series of parlor tricks, or um, I'm sorry, is it like a series of parlor tricks, as Rosanna somewhat ironically describes it? Um, so I do think all art, uh, performance art, uh, or, or, or 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 literary art, uh, or visual art, or what have you, uh, I think all art really um, is a kind of magic uh, in, in that. Um, what you're trying to do is to tell the tell something that is fundamentally true about the human condition through illusions. Um, at the same time, um, I, I think um, the series of parlor tricks uh, dismissal of of, um, of of art uh, is an old one. Uh, you know, it's it's this fundamental distrust of art of of any kind of aesthetic experience, um, but. There, there's a way to understand it in which it's helpful. Um, the any kind of art is constructed from a series of techniques. Uh, each individually appears to be a meaningless parlor trick. So, for example, when you're learning to paint, you learn specific brushstrokes and the way uh, you mix color and the way you evoke three-dimensionality through use of perspectives. All of these are are mere parlor tricks. Uh, just as in writing, you learn a series of techniques of, of, of using metaphors, of, of how to construct rhythmic sentences, and how to adjust the pacing of your scenes to keep the reader's attention. All of these are mere harder tricks. But the point uh, at which art rises above mere technique is where the writer figures out what she wants to say. Uh, the writer or the artist has to have a vision for what kind of experience uh, you know they, they they want the audience to to, to have. Uh, and in my case, I, I always have a specific reader in mind, and that's me. And I want to take that reader, me, on a very specific journey, on a very specific vision. And so, like Rosanna, I, I craft a series of illusions 
uh, that connect to each other in a specific way to allow me to go on this empathetic journey uh, that, that ends up giving me uh, the, the particular experience I, I desire. Um, and once I've done that, whether other readers different from me will share that experience is something I cannot know. Uh, I, I think um, I, I, I don't know how uh, unusual I am in this, but I find it to be incredibly unhelpful to imagine some reader different from me and to, to sort of uh, imagine how they will react to my text uh, because I, I'm not in their heads and I can empathize to a large extent, but I'm just guessing. Uh, so the way for me to make, and then also trying to craft the text for some imaginary reader who is not me, feels to me in some ways dishonest, and in some ways like trying to, um, trying to perform uh, an act that is in fact both impossible and not necessarily rewarding. So I prefer to perform for an imaginary audience who is really just me, and then, and then I try to make the work function as well as I can for myself. And so in that way, art in some way is a kind of self-delusion, uh, a kind of uh, self-hypnosis, uh, a kind of uh, play uh, in which you construct an aesthetic experience that is perfectly crafted only for yourself. Um, and the fact that you know other people get to enjoy it and actually find it to be uh, a wonderful place in which to play their own imagination is a bonus yeah. and, and one that I'm eternally grateful for. Uh, and, and it speaks to um, uh, a kind of connection that we all yearn for each other, and, and that feels miraculous when we actually find it. Uh, because it, it does seem a lot of the time that we're so alone, so utterly solipsistic, uh, that any kind of connection with other human beings, uh, to have that shared experience, to construct something that others delight in, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful, miraculous experience. You, you're talking about your audience and, like, writing as though you're, you yourself are your audience. It reminds me of that that quote that goes around sometimes that says, if you don't like your own writing, nobody else is going to. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can't, yes, you can't try to write for somebody else if you don't know what they like, but at the very least, you can write something you know you'll enjoy. Yes, yes, I very much believe that uh, that aesthetic advice is correct. Uh, one final question that we always ask: um, uh, Do you have any advice for beginning writers uh, that you would like to impart? I do. Um, this is a piece of advice I give to people all the time, um, which is this: um, You should listen to lots of writers, lots of readers. And, and read lots of books on writing and, and take everything in. Um, but the most important thing you have to learn is to figure out which pieces of advice must be ignored. Um, I know this sounds counterintuitive, but when, when you're a beginning writer, um, everyone seems to have more authority and to know more than you do. And so the tendency is to listen to everything they say and then treat it as gospel. You know, if they tell you, show, don't tell, you're like, okay, sure. So I won't tell ever again on the show. Uh, or, or, or they tell you, you know, it's not it's not professional um, to write in omniscient third person point of view. Uh, always stick to one scene, one point of view, and then you write down on that down on gospel and you say, okay, this is this is how to write professionally. This is this is how to avoid sounding like fan fiction. Okay, got it. Um, that that kind of approach is very damaging to to a young writer, a new writer. 
um, because when you give up your own authority and simply yield to everyone else in that way, uh, you end up um, <laughs> you end up writing like someone else and not like you. Um, I always think that what what you've got to do is to listen to lots of critiques and to 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 um, uh, read lots of re- uh, writing advice books because you want to be exposed to as many opinions possible and to figure out which techniques and which bits of advice actually feels true to you. You you, you have to figure out which ones work for you and for your own particular aesthetic and your own voice. Um, the reason why you get into writing is because you actually love reading and, and you love good stories and, and you believe you have very good taste. Uh, this is something that Ira Glass from This American Life uh, also said once, which is that when when we get into the creative field, it's because we often have great taste. We we, we know what is good and what is not good. It's that it's that wonderful taste that will serve us as well. And and it's it's true for writers. You you're you're you love writing. You get into writing because you have good taste. So you have to trust that taste. You have to listen to lots of advice about how to write and then judge them against your taste to see if they actually work for you. And it's, I know it's very hard to hold on to that confidence and to reject advice, but you have to do it. You have to learn to figure out which pieces of advice are harmful and not effective for you and don't work for you. They may be right for the writer who gave that advice to you, and they may be right for many other writers. But if they're not right to you, for you, then you don't need to adapt it. Uh, you, you do not have to outline. You do not have to show but don't tell. You don't have to do any of the things people tell you uh, is required for writing to be effective because the only rule for writing to be good is that it works well by your own standards, by your own taste, by your own personal aesthetic. Uh, and if you can satisfy your good taste, then you will have succeeded. But it takes a long time to learn which pieces of advice are harmful to you and which ones need to be rejected. And to learn to develop that kind of um, uh, confidence in your own taste and to reject lots of advice is a very critical skill, and, 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 and writers need to learn it. Uh, any, anything you're working on now you can tell us about? Yes, I'm working on a couple of things that I'm excited about. Um, one is the third book in the Dandelion Dynasty uh, trilogy. Yes. Uh, so this book will uh, be a sequel to The Grace of Kings and The Wall of Storms, and it's going to wrap up the story arc uh, of the Dandelion Dynasty. Uh, and there may be other books uh, set in this world, but this is going to complete this particular story arc, which I had in mind from the beginning. So I'm very excited about that, and hopefully that's going to come out next year in 2018. Do we have a title uh, I'm yet? All... I'm sorry? Do we have a title for it yet? Do we get to um, I have a working title, but because it's not finalized yet, I don't want to say it. <laughs> all right. Just in case, <laughs> <laughs> just in case the, the publisher decides that that's not the title to go with. Yeah. Um, but, 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 it, but, but I am very excited about the book. I think it's going to be awesome. Uh, lots, of, lots of exciting... Um, uh, shenanigans will happen, uh, and uh, interesting new characters, and, and, and favorite old characters, and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, the other thing I'm working on right now is um, a Star Wars book. Oh. Uh, so, nice. as part of um, Lucasfilm's um, build up to the launch of the eighth movie uh, in the franchise, um, 
they're launching a series of books written by uh, different authors to build up to it. It's part of the journey to the Last Jedi uh, project, and I um, am writing a book called The Legends of Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't tell you much about it other than the title uh, and the fact that it's going to be released October 31st. Uh, but uh, uh, Star Wars is uh, something very fundamental to me. Uh, like the Pinchu stories, uh, Star Wars was uh, among the first narratives I ever got exposed to. Mm-hmm. And uh, The Empire Strikes Back, in fact, is the very first um, full-length science fiction novel that I got to read. This mm-hmm. is the novelization of, of The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, and so, in many ways, Star Wars feels like the foundational fantasy world uh, uh, yeah. in which I gained, you know, a taste for, for that kind of storytelling. And so now to be able to um, be invited into the world and to contribute a little piece to it uh, is wonderful to me. Uh, and so I'm very excited about the legends of Luke Skywalker, and, uh, and I, I can't wait to uh, share it with readers. We're excited about it, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> thanks so much for doing this and, and talking with us. This was really great. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, thank you. Wonderful. Thank, thank you. you for having me. Uh, it's been a really great conversation. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to The Pub. Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. Thanks again to Ken Liu for talking with us. I'd also like to thank Jackie Kenny, Heather Relkin, and Carl Roman for joining the discussion, and Carl for producing the show. We'd also like to thank WIPZ 101.5 FM for allowing us to use the station for this hour. Don't forget to check us out online at straylightmag.com for new poetry, fiction, and art. And if you'd like to pick up a copy of our print journal, you can find those as well as a digital version in our online store. And don't forget to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. for more of The Pub.